Hello, powerful people, and welcome back to the Power at Work blog. My name is Seth Harris, and I'm a senior fellow at the Burton Center for Social Change. Uh, let me just say, if this is your first time watching a Power at Work blogcast, you've got a lot of catching up to do. I want to be honest with you. You have your work cut out for you. Now, thank goodness the holidays are here and you won't have to work, so you'll be able to focus all of your attention on binge watching or binge listening to every Power at Work blogcast. Now, you can watch them here on the blog. You can also listen to them here on the blog, but you can listen or download all of our blogcasts or any of our blogcasts on all of the commercial podcast providers, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Overcast. They're there. Just search Power at Work blog. You'll find our stuff. Download them, listen to them, enjoy them. Uh, we're adding to the great content today with a discussion about worker organizing and higher education with our guests, William Herbert, Joseph Vandernald, and Scott Phillips. And I'll tell you a little bit more about them in just a minute. But first, let's talk about some labor news. There are four stories that I want to highlight for you today, today being Monday, December 4th, when I'm recording this. Uh, we have been talking a huge amount about strikes really throughout the year. 2023, a historic year for strikes. Most strikes in a generation, most workers striking in a generation. But in this episode, I, in my labor news segment, I want to focus on organizing stories. I've got three of them for you, and then a fourth very important uh, story at the end. Um, story number one is the UAW has announced that it's going to organize all the remaining automakers. They've already got the big three U.S. automakers. There are 13 others. They're going to go after all of them, domestic and foreign. Um, they want historic contracts with the big three U.S. automakers, and they want to build on that momentum. There are U.S. auto workers around the country who are saying, hey, I want some of that. I want that great stuff that the UAW won by fighting um, for a great contract. This is a change of strategy for the UAW. Auto industry organizing has usually been a plant-by-plant -plant affair, at least in the last three decades. Now the UAW is going after everybody. Now they're not going to go after everybody all at once, right? Don't expect that. Not every organizing campaign advances at the same pace. And also, let me say, the UAW is not necessarily going to start with Tesla. You know, I've been talking to a lot of reporters about this story, and they all want to talk about Tesla, and I get it. I get it. Elon Musk owns Tesla. He's extremely rich. He makes for good copy. He's very controversial. He says obnoxious things. He's great at playing the villain. He hates unions. Everybody, at least in the media, is sort of hoping for the big cage match fight between Sean Fain and Elon Musk. Well, Tesla is important. And the main reason they're important is not because of Elon Musk, but because Tesla is the major player in the U.S. electric vehicle market. Also, they're a very important player in the global market. So they're competitors for the UAW-represented big three automakers as those automakers are trying to transition to electric vehicles. So their big competitor, raising labor standards at Tesla would help with that transition. But my guess is that the UAW, and it's only a guess, I don't have any inside information here, but my guess is the UAW is gonna start its organizing where it has existing organizing infrastructure, right? So they already have an organizing effort underway at a Toyota truck facility just outside Louisville, Kentucky. They've had two elections at the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. They lost narrowly. 
if they've stayed in touch with those workers, and my guess is that they have, they may try to build on that success there. It's not necessarily going to be Tesla, just because that's what folks in the media are sort of rooting for. So it'll be interesting to see how that organizing effort develops and where the grassroots support comes from. I think the UAW will also focus on those facilities that have a large number of workers sending in electronic authorization cards, which is the strategy they're using. All right. Story number two, the culinary workers, which is an affiliate of Unite Here and three other unions in Las Vegas have struck a deal with the Venetian Hotel, which includes the Palazzo, for a neutrality and card check agreement. That's huge news, not just in Las Vegas and Nevada, but all around the country. The Venetian is the last major hotel casino in Las Vegas that is not union. There is a new ownership group that has a lot of experience working with unions, and they have said, we're not gonna oppose the unions. And if you bring us signed authorization cards from the majority of the workers in each of the units that the unions are gonna organize, then we will voluntarily recognize you. That's a huge deal. That's a huge deal because it means it's very likely that that property is going to end up unionized eventually. There'll be thousands more union members. Powerful unions in Las Vegas will have even more power at the bargaining table. And so these workers who are housekeepers and back of the back of the house staff in restaurants and, you know, cleanup crews and bartenders. I mean, those folks, folks who really would not have hope of having a good quality job without a union are going to have good quality jobs, just like the ones that they won in their most recent contract last month. They threatened a strike and instead they were able to cut a deal with the union hotels in order to get good quality wage increases, benefits increases, and other uh, benefits. Um, another important part of this is that, you know, as I talked about with Susan Valentine, the national political director of Unite Here, on a political director's roundtable blogcast, which I recommend to you, the culinary workers, the bartenders union, these other unions in Las Vegas are immensely politically powerful. They have a huge amount of say in that state. And they also sort of export their power to other states and they play a role in other states. So now they're going to be even more powerful. They'll have an even more expansive network. So this is just a good thing for workers in Nevada and beyond. Story number three also involves a neutrality and card check agreement, but it's not the last one. It's the first one, and that's in the semiconductor industry. The IUE, CWA, and the Alameda County Building and Construction Trades have struck a labor neutrality agreement with Akash Systems, which is a semiconductor manufacturer building a plant in West Oakland, California. It's the first, as I said, it's the first agreement of this kind in the industry. Now, the semiconductor industry in the United States is just developing. That's because President Biden pushed for the passage of the Chips and Sciences Act, which is providing a gigantic amount of money for the development of a domestic semiconductor industry, which is critically important to a lot of manufacturing and technology industries in the United States. But there was a big question about whether the production jobs in those semiconductor manufacturing facilities would be union, even though tens of billions of dollars in public money was going to be spent. There was no way to condition that money on there being a union in place. Believe me, I was in those conversations. Um, and getting a project labor agreement, which assures that the building and construction trades workers is also very important. But we have a lot of examples of PLAs on large public, uh, on large public uh, uh, construction projects. 
Uh, in fact, President Biden went to Syracuse, New York, to congratulate just last month, and I'm sorry, two months ago in October, to congratulate Micron, another semiconductor manufacturer, on its project labor agreement with the local building trades unions in central New York. Uh, that's going to be a multi-billion dollar facility. It'll create lots and lots and lots of good quality union jobs. But the question remains, what about the production workers? The hope is, my hope is, that this deal with Akash Systems, which has not gotten a lot of attention, but my hope is that that will prove to be a model for the industry, that everybody in the industry, every manufacturer, will enter into a card check and neutrality agreement with a union, maybe IUE, CWA, and the result is that the manufacturing jobs will be union jobs. So there's a possibility. The workers have to decide if that's what they want. If they sign the cards, there will be a union. All right, our final story in labor news. It's about us. It's actually about you and us. On December 1st, the Power at Work blog celebrated our first anniversary. Um, we've accomplished a lot in a year. And if you want to know some of the things that we accomplished, I encourage you to take a look at a blog post that I published just a few days ago called Celebrating One Year of Putting Workers at the Center of the Power at Work blog. Um, please read that because 2023 was a historic year. Uh, the Power at Work blog arrived at exactly the right time. We hope we've helped you with your understanding of this epic moment in labor history, in worker power, in collective action. We hope we've told you some stories about workers and unions that you wanted to hear and that you thought were important. But most important, we hope we've provided you with some optimism about the future of working people and even the future of the country. We have come out of this experience very optimistic, highly optimistic. And let me say we want to thank you for your support. We couldn't have done it without you. You're viewing these broadcasts, reading our posts, um, the folks who've been sponsoring some of our material. We really need that help and we need your involvement. So thank you very much to our entire audience and to our sponsors as well. And speaking of sponsors, let me tell you that this broadcast is made possible in part by the generous support of Union Built PC. Union Built PC Incorporated has been serving labor's IT hardware and software needs for over 22 years. Their slogan is, we organize labor. Let me say, we love Union Bill PC. We work closely with Pete Marchese, the CEO over there. It's a great organization. Take a look at them. Uh, so let's turn to today's broadcast about organizing in higher education. We've written a lot about this subject. We've talked about it before. Now we brought in some genuine experts to help us to understand it better. Uh, Bill Herbert, William Herbert, is a longtime labor activist in New York. He's now a distinguished lecturer at Hunter College and the executive director of the National Center for the Study of Collective Bargaining in Higher Education and the Professions, the essential resource for understanding what's going on with unions and organizing in higher ed. Joseph Vandernald is an affiliated researcher with the National Center and a doctoral student in sociology at the CUNY Graduate Center. And Scott Philipson is the chair of the SEIU Higher Education Council. And speaking of Central New York, he's the president of Local 200 United, which is headquartered in upstate New York, although they rep in central New York, not upstate. No one says that. No one who's been around New York State says upstate New York. In central New York, Local 200 is in central New York, but they represent workers in New York and Vermont and Pennsylvania. 
The local represents workers in a lot of different industries, but they represent over workers at over 25 colleges and universities, and they represent both the academic side and the facilities side of those campuses. So we're delighted to have these guests. We're delighted to have you here to hear our guests. Here's our conversation about organizing and higher education. Enjoy. Well, so let me start with thanking all of you for being here on the Power at Work blog. Uh, you know, we we spend a lot of time at the blog writing about and talking about higher education. Uh, and we thought, hey, it would be nice to have people who actually know something about organizing and higher education on to tell us what, what's really going on in that world. We we do our best, but we, you all are the, the actual experts. So we're really grateful to have you here. And it's always helpful to have some data and to have a report. And so uh, one of the things we're going to be doing in this broadcast is talking at some length about uh, a report that we've already talked about with Ruth Milkman from CUNY's School of Labor and Urban Studies uh, that jo Joey helped to write uh, with a colleague, uh, Jacob Abkarian. Uh, and that report's called The State of the Unions 2023. Ruth was a guest on our Power Hour number one, and we talked a little bit about the report there, but we saved the discussion about the higher education section for you all. So really delighted that you're here to talk about that report and talk more generally about uh, about organizing in higher ed. Um, so Bill, let me, let me start with you. And uh, I, if you don't mind, I'm gonna start by talking about myself uh, one of my favorite topics. Uh, I, I published a blog post a couple of weeks ago about the middle class and unions. And I made the case that reaching the middle class in America largely means having achieved a degree of stability, particularly economic stability. So, you know, when we think about a middle class family, we imagine that they have sufficient economic resources to have reliable housing and food security and good health that's supported by health insurance and cons consistent, but maybe not lavish consumer spending, and they can pay their taxes. And they maybe have some savings, you know, some retirement savings. They might have some wealth because of their home ownership that can serve as something of a cushion in the event of an economic shock. And maybe they'll be able to retire someday. It's right? sort of the middle-class dream. By contrast, lower-income families really live lives of precarity, right? They, and the precarity is not of their making. Um, they're more likely to have multiple jobs and still earn less than people who have single jobs. They're more likely to experience volatility in their employment. They're more likely to have changing and unpredictable work schedules. They're less likely to own a home, and so their housing situation may be a little bit more or substantially more precarious. They're more likely to be food insecure. They're more likely not to have health insurance, and so any kind of a health event in their family can really present not just a health risk, but also a meaningful economic risk, too. So, so that was the story I was telling about precarity and then the middle class achieving stability. So Here's my question. That was a long way of getting to this question for you, Bill. Does that story about precarity, stability, and the middle class help us to understand what is happening with organizing and worker activism in higher education? I, are, and maybe another way to ask that is, are higher education workers feeling that their lives are more precarious now than they have been in the past, 
both professionally and economically, and, and sort of comparing today to, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago, is that a big part of why we're seeing the activity on campuses that we're seeing now? Absolutely. And I think you have to think about it more, not 20 years, but 50 years, which is the transformation of higher education over the past uh, half century with involving austerity politics that essentially cutting back on fund, public funding for higher education resulted in a restructuring of faculty positions. So originally in 1969, there were about 75% faculty were in tenure track or tenure eligible positions. And now that figure is now 25%. So the vast majority of faculty are uh, holding precarious appointments, um, which then leads to lack, lack of not just job security, but lower income. Many of them are paid on a, on a semester by semester basis um, with very limited resources. And so organizing into a union is the best way of uh, like for like every other industry about getting job security and being able to establish benefits. But that's the, that's the with respect with respect to the faculty. Another aspect of um, the restructuring of higher education caused by public policy of austerity has been that a greater reliance on graduate assistants and undergraduates to do the work on campuses. And many of these and, and, and graduate assistants and students are also suffering from uh, the politics of austerity, in which the benefits that were uh, provided previously are no longer with higher tuition, reliance on, on, uh, on student debt. Um, and so the idea that um, the kind of uh, world that, that well, once was thought of as uh, resulting following college is no longer necessarily the same dream that others had in, in a prior generation. And so we're seeing graduate assistants and undergraduates also organizing along with postdoctoral scholars, people who got their doctorates, who then went on, the, went on to try to get a tenure position and couldn't find one. They were, they were lucky enough to get a postdoctoral position but again, without job security serving for a very short period of time. And I think that, the, again, it's all tied with, with the, the pu uh, public policy decisions made by Republican administrations and Democratic administrations to uh, lower the, the level of public support for higher education. Um, and so I think that's sort of the core of what's happening and leading to such a, a massive expansion of unionization by uh, faculty and, and graduate assistants and undergraduates. Well, so I want to I want to dig in on that that economic issue a little bit, um, because the cost of a college degree in America has risen at a faster rate than almost any other consumer item in our society, um, and and the you know the the sticker price of an education at a private four year college is probably, depending upon which college you're talking about, is in the fifty to $75,000 a year range. At Publix, it's a little bit less, but it's not as much less as it used to be because of the austerity politics you were talking about. So for the people who are watching this, who are paying for their kids to go to college, I just finished paying for my youngest to graduate from college, they're trying to figure out why don't these schools have plenty of money to sustain a more stable academic workforce? Why, why are people paying so much and they're not getting what they pay for? Well, it's exactly related to the idea that federal and state budgets are political documents. And the decisions have been made over time to cut taxes on the wealthy 
and to then have less less resources to pay for things such as higher education. If we lived in a society that really believed in higher education as being a central component of, of having an informed citizenry, we would be having the kind of financial support for those institutions that used to exist. Uh, but as, as, as state and, and federal government cut uh, support for higher education that led to uh, administrations having to charge more in terms of tuition to cover costs of, of running institution. Hmm. And and cutting out the working class and middle class from access to, to a college education. And, and there, Joey, let me... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. I was going to say that, that there's also been a movement, though, of late to change that, that paradigm and that we see the things like the, uh, the, the campaigns for a new deal for higher education. We see proposals for, for uh, supporting, uh, um, guaranteeing uh, uh, community college education for all. Those are all kind of steps that have been taking place over the past four, uh, five or 10 years to um, re reinvent or, or, or create a new deal for higher ed. Right. Uh, so, Joey, I want to I want to pick up on a phrase that uh, that you and Bill used in your report, the uh, uh, the, the annual unions report, the, the supplement on higher education. Uh, I really like this phrase. And you referred to the gig academy. Right. So we hear a lot about the gig economy that evokes Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and, you know, these app based online platform companies. But you talked about the gig academy, what does that phrase mean and why did you use it? Sure, um, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, give a shout out to Adriana Kazar and, and colleagues whose excellent book, The Gig Academy, really helped to popularize this term. Um, so we use the gig academy to describe contingency and insecure work in higher education. The gig academy is, is commonly used to refer to the plight of adjunct professors who teach semester to semester, are unsure whether they will be rehired next term, are paid, as Bill mentioned, from term to term, uh, but also lack health insurance. But, you know, graduate workers aren't exempt from this either. And, and many graduate workers are also adjunct to make ends meet. Um, but even their other jobs are subject to considerable uncertainty as the, as the pandemic made apparent. So while the gig economy refers to and describes temporary, contingent, and poorly remunerated work in the labor force as a whole. The Gig Academy is the is the transposing of this set of arrangements into higher education, along with all the detrimental aspects for workers that come along with it. Right. So it's it's essentially contingent work arrangements. It's not it's not that we have teachers. Although actually, this is I was going to say we don't have teachers who are working across multiple employers, but we do. We have a lot of particularly adjunct faculty who have to have three or four institutions at which they teach, teaching a course load of eight or 10 courses in order to be able to make ends meet. But they're not doing it with an app in the way that you might be doing it if you're driving for Uber or Lyft. But it's really that the relationships are contingent, that they come with a small cash payment for one short period of time, and then maybe it's renewable and maybe it's not renewable uh, by the university or renewed by the university and and there's no benefits there's no reliability there's no professional development associated with it i i, I again i really like that phrase thanks for lifting it up scott um um i really want to hear about your experience uh and what you're hearing from workers in your organizing 
uh, and what you hear from the other locals with whom you work in SEIU that are organizing uh, 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 on campuses all across the country. Is, that, is this issue of precarity versus stability a part of the conversation that's going on on college and university campuses? And how are, if they are talking about it, how are faculty members and adjuncts and graduate workers talking about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think so. We, in SAU, we've been organizing um, contingent faculty for a number of years, and we've gone through these efforts where you, know, you can get things like longer term appointments and some other things that really matter to folks in terms of that dealing with that precarity. And then, you know, other ways to, you know, you start prepping a class and then it gets canceled and then you didn't get anything for it. Now we can bargain ways that provide a little economic benefit to folks. Again, touching on that idea of precarity and you're trying to plan a budget for your family and it's nearly impossible until drop ad and things like that. So I think what's going on is a little bit different with the grads is, um, you know, I think they've gotten in, uh, I think there's a power dynamic at play um, that's a little bit different than what we see with the faculty space. And I, and I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, through the course of I think the COVID crisis and a bunch of other things, you know, people just don't want to live the same way they used to. And, you know, sit, sitting at the bargaining table for one of our newer units, um, I can say that it's a unique experience when your employer is also, your direct employer is also your advisor who you need to write recommendations and provide you the next step in your life. They may be funding your research and or you may be working on their research. I mean, there are very interesting power dynamics at play with grad students. Um, you know, I think to, to dovetail on what, what Bill is saying, as money got tighter, people are fighting for grants, people are fighting for external sources of money, which means that grads are fighting to get those sources and they're getting them from tenured faculty. And so I think what's going on now is that, you know, folks, especially in the grad space, are seeing that you have very well-funded private institutions in particular, um, not surprising to hear billions of dollars in, in assets just in their endowments alone, let alone the assets that they own. I mean, these private colleges are like uh, small cities. Um, and yet you have these folks who can't even, they don't even make a living wage. They can't even live in the towns where, um, where they reside. And they've been brought from all over the country um, to work essentially. And, and they're capped. I mean, you talk about the gig economy. If you're a grad student and you're working 20 hours a week, that's the limit of what you're supposed to be able to work. That means you're not supposed to pick up an Uber or Lyft or an app or a gig. And so you're, in a way, maybe it's not the right phrase, but you're landlocked to the extent that you can't earn more money. So like our faculty members that are adjuncts call themselves throughway flyers. They'll zip up and down the throughway up here in upstate New York to cover many of these small private colleges. Well, you can't do that um, if you had the time anyway, which most grads will tell you that it's not a 20-hour week commitment anyway, that that's kind of a misleading thing. Um, but I just think there's also, you can't uncouple it from the young people, I mean, in SCIU, we talk about it all the time. It's like 88% of young people have a very favorable opinion of unions. I can't remember when that ever existed, not in my career. Right. I've been doing this I'm for gonna wanna, I'm going to want to talk about that with you. I'm going to want to ask you about uh, the role of, of the culture change that's happened with young people in our country and unions uh, in a little bit. I'm, I'm going to want you to focus on that a little bit. I do, I, I I do want to ask you one question about, because there are a lot of unions in this space now. Right. S I, I'm going to I'm not going to be able to name them all or remember them all. But I know SEIU, UAW, the UE, AFT, uh, OPEIU is in this space. I'm, I'm leaving some out. I apologize to anybody that I left out. I, it's not 
it's not malicious. I just have a terrible memory. Um, are are different unions focusing on different populations of of workers? So, for example, I know I know because I have a family member who used to do this kind of work. Maybe he's still doing this kind of work. SEIU was very active in organizing adjuncts. UAW and UE, I know, have been very active in organizing graduate workers. Um, or is it everybody organizes wherever they have an organizing lead and, and just you all sort it out amongst yourselves when the time comes? I, I think it's the latter. I mean, I think we spent a bunch of time organizing in the, you know, full-time non-tenured in the adjunct space in SEIU. But for me, I mean, my local up here in New York you know, we've represented workers on the facility side, food services side, library right. workers for decades. So when we wanted to organize, for example, you know, 1200 grads at Syracuse University, it was to build on the power of the other 900 members that we've had on campus since the late 60s, early 70s. And I think, you know, looking at it, we're, we're looking at these institutions in a broader way, right? So to bring real power, it's maybe not the best idea to have five unions on campus, right? I mean, maybe the best way is to collaborate in such a space that that provides that kind of of leverage. And we're we're doing it in SEIU out in California with California Faculty Association and CSUEU, who's got one of the largest undergrad organizing campaigns maybe ever with twenty thousand undergrad workers. Um, you know, the idea that to bring enough power to bear to change these systems, you need critical mass not just nationally, but within the institution. Yeah, that's uh, uh, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating to me. But I, want, I want to put in right, what Scott talked about in terms of power dynamic. Is that one of the main issues among many graduate, many graduate assistant uh, organizing campaigns is the issue of sexual harassment. And that has spurred a tremendous amount of organizing, particularly on a variety of campuses in which uh, the grad student unions are pushing much stronger language regarding anti-discrimination provisions, including arbitration of issues involving harassment. And I think one of the most exciting parts is the the, the way in which um, uh, the, the gender dynamics in terms of leadership. You see more and more women taking charge in, as leaders of these grad unions, which is also a major element about what we're seeing, trans, the transformation of labor in higher ed and also um, outside of higher ed. Yeah, I just want to uh, reference, I, I, before we uh, went on camera here, I talked to you about uh, a blogcast that we uh, published a little bit earlier this this week. We're recording on, what's today, October, I'm sorry, November 2nd. My goodness, the month went by. But we're recording on November 2nd. Earlier this week, we published a blogcast about uh, transgender workers and unions, and we had an extended conversation about the important role that unions play in fighting discrimination and harassment in the workplace. And the power dynamic that Scott was referencing that exists between faculty supervisors or other supervisors, research supervisors, and graduate workers and others who are in the lab, in the classroom, or simply in need of a recommendation or have some other need from that that, that powerful individual, the, the risks are just tremendous. And there's a lot of trouble on college campuses as a consequence of that. And a union can play a very important role, both in setting policy, but also in representing workers when they face this kind of discrimination. So I appreciate your, your bringing that up. But I, Bill, I want to, uh, let me come back to you on this a little bit. Um, so we've had faculty unions for a very long time. We've had unions of some support workers, uh, as Scott was saying, for a very long time. Um, I, I should say that faculty 
were largely excluded from organizing, at least in the private sector, because of the infamous Yeshiva University decision in 1980. But in the public sector, we've had faculty unions for a long time. And, and AUP has been an association for those, for faculty members, even if they couldn't fully unionize. Um, but but um, what I've been wondering about is, when did higher ed become such a ripe target for union organizing? Was there a moment? Was there an event? What? Because you talked about 50 years of transition in the, uh, in the industry to a gig academy, to a more contingent set of relationships because of defunding in the public sector. But, but was there a moment that, that turned it? Was there an event that turned it so that SEIU and UAW and UE and OPEIU and AFT wanted to get in there and start organizing? Well, I think it's a great question. I think um, the, the, every time the statute, every time legal rights are granted um, with respect to the right to organize in higher education, we see an explosion in unionization. So uh, 1970, the uh, NLRB finally ruled that uh, they will take jurisdiction over higher education, and that precipitated a major growth in unionization in the private sector. Similarly, when state laws were passed in, in the late 60s, granting public sector workers the right to unionize, whether it's a tail law or the statutes in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, et cetera, you see a ex massive expansion in unionization. Most of the, but the, among faculty, you, historically, the greatest level of support have always been those in the lower tier um, in, in, in faculty, people who have the least amount of power within the institution are the most likely to support unionization. Um, and so, so the key triggering has been um, historically this um, the changes in the law. Um, with regard to yeshiva decision, that cut off and made it um, impossible to get certified if you're in, a, in a, a faculty member who is in a who is part of shared governance. But that did not include contingent faculty. And so, what happened is, even though yeshiva has been, been it was is still the law that the reality is that doesn't apply to contingent faculty who are not involved in shared governance. That set the stage for this explosion of unionization over the past decade among contingent faculty. Similarly, with graduate students, it's the same thing. I mean, graduate students have been unionizing, have had, I'm sorry, have, have been unionizing before the, the, 19, the late 60s, but they first recognized union of graduate students was in 1969, and the first contract was in 1970 at the University of, of uh, Wisconsin-Madison. The same year was also the time that student workers, undergraduate student workers at the University of Oregon organized, and they got their first contract in 1970. Now we move up, move up to today and you see that graduate students are organizing in, in, in great numbers, both in the public and private sector. And even at the University of Oregon now, you see just this past um, two weeks, the, the uh, right. undergraduates voted to unionize again um, at that university. So I think legal aspects of it and then uh, are, are certainly a key contributor. And it's only gotten more severe with regard to the decline in the kind of econo the economic decline about um, the, the benefits that are provided and the lack of, of, pub of uh, public funding. So the, it puts greater pressure on workers on campus to, make, to, be, to uh, get unionized, to be able to have power to demand more and to success successfully right. get more. Right. And I let me just add one other uh, sort of turning point that's much more recent turning point, which was in, in 2016, uh, the National Labor Relations Board decided a case known as Columbia University that 
I don't want to say finally resolved, but resolved again the question of whether or not graduate student workers are employees covered by the National Labor Relations Act in the private sector and therefore are able to organize. The, the board had flipped back and forth, I don't know how many times, three or four times on the question of whether those workers are employees. That decision, very interestingly, that decision was not overturned by President Trump's appointees to the National Labor Relations Board. I'm not exactly sure why that is. I probably am happy that I don't know the answer to that. And President Biden's board not only is enthusiastic about graduate workers organizing, they have now taken the position, or at least the general counsel has taken the position, the board has not yet taken this position, that student athletes, although Jennifer Abruzzo, the general counsel at the board, chastised me for using that phrase. She doesn't like that phrase. But the students who work at athletics in and colleges and universities in the private sector, her view is they are employees as well, and they should be able to organize. And there's a case percolating out of the University of Southern California on that issue right now. But that was only, you know, that, that graduate worker decision was only seven years ago. And yet there's been this tremendous explosion in, in organizing, at least among graduate and, and as well undergraduate workers. And I want to, uh, Scott, let me come to you. We seem to have lost Joey. I hope everything's okay with him. Maybe he'll be able to rejoin us. I hope he, he is able to do it. If not, we can, I don't know, talk about him behind his back. I don't know what we're going to do. But let me, let me, there are two facts, Scott, that I want to mention to you and get your reaction to that I thought were really interesting in, in the report that Bill and Joey uh, uh, put out. Um, there has been a huge growth over the last three years, an accelerating growth over the last three years in student worker bargaining units, both graduate and undergraduate. Uh, and at the same time, growth in faculty bargaining units has slowed really since not just the same time, going all the way back to 2016. Um, how do you explain that? Is are are unions simply focusing more on graduate workers because they're available and they because they win by? I mean, these the results in these elections are unbelievable. On the northeastern campus where where I'm employed, they won with a 93 percent vote. You get 93, 94, 95 percent votes. My my alma mater, the graduate workers at Cornell, are going to be voting fairly shortly. They're going to win with a north of 85% vote would be my guess. But but so we're seeing big increase in, grad, in graduate and undergraduate worker organizing. We're seeing a decline, at least since 2016, in faculty member organizing. What's, what's your sense of what's going on there? I, I mean, sure. I mean, part of it, I think, is resource driven, right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, the, the, the movement amongst Non full-time non-tenured and adjunct faculty preceded this new groundswell with the grads. So it makes sense, right? You go out, you organize a bunch of places, the ones that go, go, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of on dwindling turf, if you will, to use organizing speak. I think the other thing is that there's just so much heat amongst the grads right now. I mean, you talked about 90%. It's not just 90%, though, in, you know, Cornell and Ithaca, New York. It's 90 plus percent at Duke University. Um, we're poised to see a similar number at Emory, both two schools in the South um, and schools that at least in with regard to Duke had an election before and weren't successful. So there's definitely right. something different. And I think the labor movement with limited resources that we have 
is looking at where, um, you know, folks really want the union. And so I think we're putting definitely more effort into those um, those places. And so I think that that could account for some of it. Um, and, and the numbers are just gigantic. I mean, you know, um, 3,000 workers at BU in the grad unit there, uh, 1,200 at Syracuse University in my local. I think it's 1,700 at Emory, almost 3,000 at Duke. So, I mean, I, I don't, I'm maybe not as familiar with the paper that Joey and, and Bill did to, to understand, but I mean, those numbers outweigh um, the number of, let's say, uh, part-time or contingent faculty on those campuses. The classes are being taught by grads. I mean, period, full stop. They're the, they're the instructor of record. And, and when you look at the, you don't know the difference um, for a lot of these places. You don't know whether or not your professor is um, a grad or, um, or a full-time tenured faculty or a full-time non-tenured or, a, um, or an adjunct. Yeah, just let me jump back in to point out that uh, clearly one of the elements of what's trans- transpiring both among faculty and graduate assistants in terms of the drop in unionization prior to nineteen, prior to twenty twenty, was the pandemic. Uh, after uh, after twenty twenty was the pandemic, and so you had a, a drop in both. In the our report covered a, a year and a half from uh, January of twenty twenty two to June thirtieth of twenty twenty three. With regarding faculty, though, this semester is showing a, a resurgence again of faculty unionization. So there are now three new bargaining units at community colleges in Maryland. Two, uh, um, there's a, a pending petition involving faculty at the University of, of Kansas, as well as a, a new petition filed on, on by uh, involving Northern Illinois University. So we're seeing now the same kind of, of resurgence that we saw regarding graduate assistance and why the timing of it, I, I can't say, but clearly we're seeing again, uh, unionization um, um, by faculty in, in, in again, in, in Kansas, Illinois, and Maryland, which is, is, is important to underscore. Um, and the other aspect yeah. of it is the, the massive increase in unionization among uh, um, the um, graduate assistants and undergraduates that, Jay, that Jake, Joey, and I showed in our report is all coming from the po- post-pandemic um, environment in which I think a, a lot of lessons were learned during the pandemic in terms of, of needing to have a, a collective voice in the workplace and, and in terms of way what had transpired and not just in people's, obviously the, the tragedies in people's lives, but also the impact in terms of what was tra- transpiring at work including the transformation to remote learning, remote education and all the burdens associated with that. Yeah, I, I, I've said in a number of different forums that the, the pandemic was an immensely powerful teacher for workers across industries that they could not rely on their employers to look out for their best interests in a whole host of ways. Uh, and the anger and frustration that workers are feeling out of that experience yeah, I think is really palpable. And we're seeing it at the bargaining table, uh, UAW, Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions, and I, I agree with you that we're seeing it on campuses uh, right now. Uh, Joey, so let me welcome back. Let me just say thank you for rejoining us. Uh, so I want to I, I want to ask you about strikes because uh, again, I'm relying on your report here. There have been a lot of strikes in higher education over the last five years, and in the last three years, the growth in strikes has been among faculty and student worker units. In fact, the, the largest strike of 2022, according to my friends at the Cornell ILR Labor Action Tracker, was among graduate workers and other workers at the University of California, the largest strike of any kind in the country in 2022. Why has there been a growth in strikes? Is it 
connected in some way to the growth in strikes that we were just talking about that we've seen in other industries that this post-pandemic period workers are really angry, they're really unhappy? Is Or is there something else that's happening in higher ed? It's a great question. I mean, in you know, the um, $64,000 question. Thank you very much. Can I just say, I, can I just say thank you very much? I thought it was a good question too. You know, I, I am an, I am a professional academic. I should be able to ask a good question. But go ahead. What's what's happening? Tell us what's happening. Absolutely. No. Right. That's that should be that should be the the number one thing that we're good at, right? Um, I, I, but I, I think that the uh, it's 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 challenging to pinpoint exactly what causes strikes. But one thing I can say for sure is that as you had all, as we've all been pointing out during the, the length of this conversation, there is a lot of pent up demand and conditions have gotten worse. And, but also strikes are contagious. Strikes are, are, um, are contagious social phenomenon. And I believe that when workers see that other workers can use their collective power to uh, withhold their labor that, um, and, and win, then it's, a, it's an incredibly encouraging phenomenon to witness. Um, you know, uh, one thing that we pointed out in the report, which uh, is also occurred at the University of California, but also at Rutgers in, in this year, is that these are um, multi-title uh, strikes. They're wall-to-wall -wall strikes. So this is including uh, not just graduate workers, which, as you pointed out, the University of California was the biggest strike of 2022. But these, these are also including other workers working together and coordinating um, and, and seeing sort of a shared uh, community of solidarity and interest and understanding that collectively we can win if, if we walk off the job. One of the facts, just that, that the support received with regard to strikes is also critically important. We're seeing that both in higher ed and elsewhere, that the communities are supporting the strike strikes. And, and on campus, you see undergraduates showing support for strikes by faculty. And that kind of community support um, really helps tremendously in the victories we've been seeing um, uh, across the country. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think that's exactly right. This has really been uh, you know, the, the, both the pandemic and this post-pandemic period has been like a crash course for America in trade unionism, in worker action and collective action. And the fact that it's actually happening on campuses, which is which are educational institutions, I think, is especially both poetic and I think powerful to a lot of folks. I, I think it really is important. Scott, um, I wanted to pick up on your mention of uh, California State University, where you have a campaign underway right now, you're organized. I hope I'm not disclosing this. I think you disclosed it. I hope I'm not letting out a secret here. I don't think I am. I think it's in the report. You've got, you're organizing 10,000 undergrads at 20. Cal State. Um, tell us what that organizing process looks like. Take us inside that organizing campaign. What what are the discussions that are going on? What were the discussions that went on when you organized at Syracuse back in 2019? Give us a little flavor for what, what organizing on a campus looks like. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I can't speak to all the on the ground stuff. Um, you know, it's 20,000 undergrads in the California 20. system. It's 20,000. Wow. Um, that college system is one of the largest in the world. Uh, and I think, you know, um, the folks there just think that they're, they should do better. 
right? I mean, that it's just not okay that they're doing all these jobs that are so essential. And, and I think that's another thing that came out of the, the pandemic, right? I mean, we titled things. These were different jobs that were essential. We needed them, right? So if we need them so much, how is it that I can't pay rent? How is it that I can't afford to, to live? How is it that I can't afford to sustain myself? Um, and so, you know, I think that's what's going on. And I think that's some of what happened at, at Syracuse with the grads. It's like faculty weren't coming in and grads were teaching classes. Grads were on campus. Grads were dealing with, you know, upticks in COVID and living in communal housing and all these different things. And they got through it. And I think the reason they're going on strike just to pick up another is we have high demands, right? And in order to change systems, you need to really rock the system a bit because the systems want to stay the way they are. Right. I mean, the colleges look at it and say, well, we just keep pumping out more graduate students and undergraduate students and more tenured, you know, or more potential non-tenured faculty or whatever. I mean, they're producing their own supply of workers. And so they look at the folks and say, well, you know, we just don't need to pay you that much or treat you that well because there's plenty more that would take your place. And folks woke up in COVID and said, maybe that's true, but that's not what should be. Right. And so to, to make awareness over that, you have to go on strike and get people to see because I have members of my own local union because we have lots of other workers outside the higher ed space that are like, well, I thought those people were all made good money. And I'm like, no, they don't. You know, we, we were meeting with adjunct faculty or grad students that make much less than cleaners on some of our campuses. And we're like, you know, I'd had members who were like, well, I clean toilets and I make almost double what they make. I'm like, yeah. And the university can afford to do better. Um, so I think some of those realizations, but also I think the strike is, it's also, um, I don't know what term Joe used, but it, it is, it's like hypnotic. It's like, you see all these people rising up and you say, well, I should be able to do that too. I should be able to get something better for myself and my future and my family. And, um, you know, and you can't also decouple it from the conversation in our country around student loan debt. You know, it's all monopoly money when you go to school and you sign on the paper until you start getting those, those bills that come in the mail and then it's real. You know, um, so, I mean, I think it's a whole lot of things, you know, and those were paused during COVID and now they're starting back up again. And so people are like, well, how am I going to make those those payments and things like that? So it's a, it's a complex issue. But then you sit there and many of our grads will say, you know, but this university, fill in the blank, has this billions of dollars. They can do better. Right. You know, um, and they have donors that seem to line up an almost limitless supply to give them millions or tens of millions of dollars to put their name on a building. And so there's this focus on the new fancy building or the new fancy facility. And yet the people who work in there can't afford to even eat lunch in a facility like that, you know, or they have to drive around because they can't afford parking on campus. So they drive around and around and around just to find a place to park. Um, there's just so many things that, that came up in the organizing campaigns that just are broken systems inside of higher education. Yeah. That's important stuff. Very powerful stuff. I, I think the police may be surrounding Joey's apartment. So I'm going to do our last question. I'm going to do our last question. I'm going to start with you, Joey, before they drag you away. Uh, and, and just give a just give a very quick answer to this question. Uh, you don't have to go into great detail, but I'm going to put you on the spot. We're going to record this for posterity. So we're going to check to see if the prediction you're about to make is going to be accurate. Okay, I'm going to, so I'm going to hold you all, all to this. How much, Joey, starting with you. How much growth will we see in union membership in higher education over the next five to 10 years? How, how much? Um, well, I, I, will, I will hedge that a little bit and say I, I don't think the growth is slowing down. As Bill had indicated, there, 
we're seeing a ramping up of um, contingent faculty organizing again. And there's still a lot of potential in the graduate student space and undergraduates, as Scott was pointing out in California. So I don't think this is slowing down. You know, uh, especially student workers are, are unique in some ways because we are not as easy to replace as some of our, um, our fellow workers at places like Starbucks. And um, we, we have a stake in the democratic control and, and input of the university. And those um, issues that Scott and Bill and we, all of us, we've been talking about, they're not going away. And so I believe that the potential uh, is, still, uh, is still there in the future for more growth. All right. That's a great answer, but you completely punted on the question. Scott, uh, be a little more specific, <clears throat> if you're I, willing. Be a little more specific. Yeah, I mean, How I much think, growth I, yeah, I mean, are we going to see in union membership? You're, you're, you're going to be a big part of that growth. Sure. So tell us, what in the next five to ten years, what can we expect to see? I think it's going to be tens of thousands of workers. I think it's going to be a monumental change. I think that as we roll through some of these first contracts, I mean, just in SEIU, we're in negotiations with Syracuse University, Duke, and BU all at once. Um, all pretty major institutions. And, you know, we're comparing with folks that were in Columbia and MIT and other things. And I think as workers see what can be done, what can be won, the kind of structural changes you can make, I think that people will continue to rise up because there are systems that need to be changed. And they're not going to change on their own. They would have already. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think as we get through the contracts and we start seeing more and more things that we can do with collective bargaining that that deal with some of these issues, like the power dynamics and things like that, I think that the graduate students in particular are going to say, yeah, I, I want some of that. I want those rights. I want that support when I have to go in and talk to my chair or, you know, I want a union steward with me in that conversation to support me because I can't afford to throw away the last six, seven, eight years of my career just because I say something wrong. Um, I mean, I think it's ripe, and I, I think it will continue to grow. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing is that is that the the folks are, are rising up, um, and it's very worker led. I would just say, like these are these are truly amazing worker led campaigns. You know, I've been in the union in years when we tried to organize certain groups of workers, and it was very staff intensive. And it's not to say that that's not the case, but these are truly worker-led movements that are rising up. And so I do think there's a continuation of this movement. And I don't think it slows anytime soon. Great. All right. So Scott's bid, Bill, is tens of thousands. <clears throat> I want you now, because you're supposed to, you're the big guru in this space, give us a precise number. How yeah. many more union members are we going to see in the next five to 10 years? Well, first, I just want to pick up on what Scott said about the the, the um, level of inspiration and how inspiring what's, what's tr uh, transpiring. One of the things to keep in mind, and we point out in the report, is that undergraduates are unionizing by themselves. They're learning how to organize themselves. We have four examples where undergraduates studied how to unionize, unionize themselves without uh, support from another union or union staff. And I think that's an inspiring indication of the where workplace democracy is going and and the relevance of workplace democracy to political democracy it's a very hopeful sign for our country with regard to your question i think there are a couple of factors that we have to be mindful of one is the importance again of politics 
as statutes get changed to grant public sector collective bargaining rights in higher education in other states, we're going to see massive expansion. So we, we've seen movement in that direction in Colorado. It didn't, didn't get, get fully enacted, but there's been a movement to change the law there. In Maryland, the statute just changed now uh, regarding community colleges, and that's led now at least to three new certifications of, of new units. And, and there's anticipation next this coming legislative term, there'll be an, uh, a, a change in granting uh, the university's faculty the right to unionize and graduate assistance. So those those legal changes will be important. And then other other factor is organizing in the South. One union we did not mention during this so far has been CWA, which has been doing organizing without statutory protections on campuses around the country, trying to do wall-to-wall -wall organizing. More we see of that and the success of that will see greater growth. Um, and then you see, as as uh, Scott mentioned, SEIU in, in, um, in, uh, at Duke and at Emory shows an example of unionization. So in terms of numbers, I would go with what Scott has suggested um, as being as being the the amount where it's going to be dependent on those factors I mentioned. But what's clear is that, um, as you said, this is a moment in time of a real understanding, what I call a labor resurgence that's taking place. That instead of it being a uh, people not go, not wanting to go to work, the great great resignation, which the media had been talking about, what we're seeing is a great labor resurgence, and that resurgence is going to be inspiring for others as they see uh, people on other campuses having the right to union, having a union in place, getting better benefits and job security. We're going to see a, a massive increased massive growth in unionization across the country. A great valedictory to bring us to a close. Bill, Scott, Joey, thank you so much for being with us on the Power at Work blog. Really appreciate a great conversation. Thank you, Seth. Thanks, Seth. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Thanks very much for watching the Higher Education Blogcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. We learned a lot from it here at the Power at Work blog. Um, hey, you can connect with us in a lot of different ways. Um, we are on LinkedIn. Uh, just search Power at Work blog. We have our own page. We're on Facebook. We have a page on Facebook. You can find us at Power at Work blog on Twitter and threads, Twitter X, I should say, and threads. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram and on TikTok. It's Power at Work there. You can also connect to us by following all the various social media accounts of our parent organization, the Burns Center for Social Change. If you'd like to send us a note, send us a message through LinkedIn, send us a message through any of those other social media platforms. We're really eager to hear from you if you have ideas for stories we should be talking about or issues we should be addressing, blogcasts we should be doing. We wanna hear from you. A bunch of the blogcasts that we did in 2023 were recommended to us by our listeners and they helped us to identify the right people to talk about those issues. We were delighted to do that. Thanks very much for your support of the Power at Work blog. Thanks for watching this blogcast. We'll see you back here on the blog really soon.